Luke 11 then. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We're going to focus in on the the very last phrase of the Lord's Prayer as it's given to us in Luke's Gospel, and lead us not into temptation. Let me just begin with a couple of questions. When was the last time that you felt really intensely and consciously aware that you were being tempted? Is this something that you live with regularly all the time, or is it something that you're not conscious of? What What's your experience of temptation? And then let me ask you this as well. When was the last time that you prayed intensely and fervently about the temptations that you're facing? And I don't mean, because I think this is our tendency, I don't mean pray just about the sins in your life. I mean praying about the temptations. Because I think we have a tendency, don't we, to focus upon the fruit, what happens, what we do, rather than the roots, which are, it always begins with temptation. That's what James tells us in James chapter 1, that temptation and desire, they give birth to to sin. Sin's further down the road. So when was the last time that you, you prayed intently, fervently, asked Christ to deal with temptations, specific temptations in your life? One of the greatest books um, that's been written on temptation was by a Puritan author called John Owen. It's a little book, um, and this edition is just called Temptation, 120 pages. And he, he just begins and he says that let him who would spend little time in te- te- temptation spend much time in prayer. That's the basic idea of what Jesus is pushing us towards in the Lord's Prayer here. But I want to begin by, um, by opening up a little bit about what this word means. Because in the New Testament, this... There's, there's a word that's used for temptation, which is also used in other contexts. It has t- two basic meanings. That sometimes it's given to us as temptation. Sometimes it's given to us as trials or testing. And it's the same root word, but depending on where it's written and the context and the surrounding verses, 
The translators sometimes translate it temptation, which is how it's translated here, sometimes as trial or testing. I think this is a really important thing to understand to get back to what Jesus is getting to here. What is the difference here? Let me just show you a couple of passages that just show us what, what's going on. If you, if you flick over to James chapter 1, in James 1, he talks in a number of places about um, trials and tests and temptations, but he opens in this way, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. There's the same word. Could be translated temptations. When you meet trials or temptations of various kinds. Count it joy, he says. Rejoice when you stumble into temptations or tests. You see, there's an option there for how you want to understand or read it. But I want you to see something important here. He says that you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then down in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There we are again, the same word coming through. Who remains steadfast under trial. If you then flick towards 1 Peter and chapter 4, you see the same thing going on. So 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. It's the same word again. The fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What these authors are telling us is that there are certain kinds of trials that we, we walk through in life which are desirable, something that we should rejoice in and be, almost be glad about because they give an opportunity for the grace of God to be revealed. What God has done and worked into your life can be shown. So when you're walking through trials of suffering, which is what James and Peter are talking about, when you feel the fires of of, of tough times, the good things that God's put in you can find expression, can find a way out. And so they are, in one sense, something to be desired, or at the very least, To ride through with joy. That's what they want to tell us. Get through these things with joy and knowing that God is is very much with you in that. On the other hand, there are are passages in the New Testament where, again, the same word is used, but it's cast in a completely negative light. Now think about this one. When, When Jesus was with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says he he wants them to to wait up with him and pray. Do you remember how he says in at the end of Towards the end of Matthew, um, on a halfway through Matthew 26, it's a very long passage, uh, chapter, verse 41, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptations or trials. Same word again. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So on the one hand, these trials that we can walk into can be something to be desired. On the other hand, there's something to be avoided at all costs. What's the difference here? Why is it that the New Testament approaches, uses the same word, but wants to tell us two completely different things about the trials we walk through? And I think the distinction is this. That there are... These trials we go through can come from one of two sources. If they come from God... They're designed for our blessing and our good and our benefit. And that's what James and Peter are talking about when they talk about the trials as in the sufferings of life, that they give opportunity for the grace of God to find expression. But when trials come from Satan, 
They come as an opportunity for you to fail. John Calvin put it this way. He said that God tests in one way, Satan in another. The devil tries us in order to damn, condemn, ruin and destroy. And God, by contrast, tries us in order to measure the sincerity of his servants by proving them. And also to increase their spiritual stamina, to mortify, cleanse and scold their flesh by disciplining it. And so another author, this guy John Owen, who I was talking about, he said it's like a knife. The knife can either be used to cut the flesh, as in the sinful flesh in your life, or to cut the throat. In other words, to kill you altogether. And this is how trials work in life. All the kind of sufferings and temptations and the things we walk through. Either they're they're a gift from God as something which can greater shape you in holiness and give you an opportunity to grow in grace and to know the rewards that God will give you as a result of triumphing. Or they come from Satan as something designed to kill, ruin, and destroy your life. And when we're talking about the latter kind, James tells us in James 1.13 that God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone with evil. So when we're talking about allurements to sin, they can never, ever come from the living God. He never wants to trip you up into sin. He may expose you to sufferings, he may put you into trials, but they're with the purpose of putting you in the crucible. Do you remember that verse in Proverbs 17 where it says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts? The picture is of a kind of a bowl in which you can put silver and then put it over a hot flame. And as as the heat turns up in the crucible or in the furnace, there's a purification process that goes as the metals melt, and then all the dross can be scraped off the top, and what you're left with is something pure. That's God's intention for your life. And sometimes he uses sufferings and and difficulties in life to get you there. If you've suffered, if you are suffering, know that that can be a gift from God to purify you. But the enemy has a different purpose altogether. And that's what Jesus has in mind here when he says, lead us not into temptation. He's talking about a completely different intent. Suffering is, of course, sorry, temptation to sin is, of course, a form of suffering. But it's always coming from the enemy with a view to killing you, basically. And so this is what I want you to understand as we, as we get into this, the meaning of this prayer. The temptation towards sin has to be regarded as a mortal enemy of your soul. I think we have to underline that more than ever today because I think we live in a, in a day and age when these things are often made light of. And the words that we use are cheapened. This book, I'm not necessarily going to recommend it to you. It's kind of a mixed book, but it was a, a bestseller called Unapologetic, written by a journalist called Francis Spufford. And he captured this idea really perfectly when he, he talked about the cheapening of words. He put it this way. He says, our culture is smudged over with half-legible religious scribbling. In other words, we have the kind of echo, the distant memory of what some of these religious words like sin and temptation mean. But he says that the vocabulary that used to describe religious emotions 
hasn't gone away or sunk into an obscurity from which you could carefully reintroduce it. So we're not a completely pagan country where you can mention the word sin or mention the word temptation and it comes with complete freshness and you can fill in the blanks for people. He says instead, these words are still in circulation, but they've been repurposed with new meanings generated by new usages, meanings that make people think they know what believers are talking about. And he says one great example of this is the word sin. He says that well-known contemporary brand for ice cream and high-end chocolate truffles and lingerie in which the color red predominates and sex toys and cocktails. What he's saying is that these words, which in the Bible are the difference between life and death, have become something cheapened in our culture. So that he says on the other page that sin basically means indulgence or enjoyable naughtiness. And unfortunately, the word temptations kind of followed the same fate as the word sin. We use the word temptation or tempting in the kind of most lightweight circumstances. Oh, you know, a friend asks you, do you want to go to McDonald's? Oh, it's tempting. But you've just started your New Year diet. You see how we've cheapened the language of the Bible. So it it becomes something much more lightweight and meaningless, really. But when you want to get back to what the Bible has to say about Temptation, we're getting to the heart of what the Christian battle is all about, where the war is waged. In the Bible, temptation is the source and the trigger for all of the ruin that we see in creation. Genesis 3, which by the way is the most enlightening passage in all of the Bible in helping to understand the way temptation works, how the enemy tempts you. But in in, in just a few short words of exchange, the entire course of human history is altered towards all the suffering and wickedness and destruction that we see in creation because it pivoted on temptation, what happened when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. In Luke 8, this is a story that we looked at just last term. In the parable of the sower, verse 13, it says that the ones on the rock, so the shallow soil, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing or in a time of temptation, they fall away. In the Bible, temptation is a matter of life and death. It's a matter between you experiencing the fullness of what God has for you or you walking in in a place of shadows and darkness and misery and, and ultimately destruction. In Hebrews 3, quoting Psalm 95, it says, Don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness when they were tempted. Temptation... It gives the opportunity for your heart to become cold, calloused, petrified, so that you can't experience or feel the love of God when you you are seduced away from his word and away from truth. This is what temptation is in the Bible. It is something deadly serious and something dark and that has to be understood for what it is. 
And so, in view of that, I think that as a Christian, and when we're understanding the intent behind what Jesus is saying in this prayer, lead us not to temptation. This isn't, this isn't just a word, that you, a line that you tack on to the end of the Lord's Prayer in a kind of lightweight, just, just ripping it off the tongue as you finish your prayer. This is a declaration of war against the enemy. You think about how the enemy works. From beginning to end, what we discover is that Satan has just one tactic for ruling. He always rules through temptation. If he can tempt a person, he can get them to obey him rather than God, and then they become, in a sense, a little bit more a part of his kingdom and his rule. That's how he got in at the beginning with Adam. And that's how he tries to get in with, with Jesus in Matthew 4. Do you remember how Jesus is baptized in the Jordan? He, ex- he experiences the power of the Spirit coming on him in the form of a dove. And then he's driven into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. And the point I'm trying to get home to you is this. that te- Satan has just one weapon, one technique that he uses against Christ. And it's the same one he tried against Adam and, and one with there. He starts tempting, alluring, enticing, suggesting, and twisting God's words, quoting scriptures at Jesus. That means that when we are... If, if Satan can only rule through, through his tempting in your heart, then by praying this prayer, this is, this is waging war against him. This is going for the jugular of of Satan and his rule in your life and in, in the world. You know how so many war, wars, um, non-fictional and fictional, hinge, don't they, on some great moment or some great um, battle that, that, that alters the course of history. So in the Second World War, there, there are probably a few of these things that would count as valid moments for that. But D-Day being one of the great ones. They knew that if they could land soldiers safely on the beaches, um, that it was the beginning of the end for, for, for the enemy, for the Nazis. And the same, similar thing was true of, of the story of the dam busters. You ever heard about the dam busters? How Germans had all these massive, massive dams, um, damming rivers across the country that were a source of enormous power and electricity that fueled their war machine, fueled the, the industry and the manufacture. And the Brits knew that rather than just sending men to be slaughtered um, in battles, they knew that if they could cut off the heart of, of all the production of the German war machine by destroying these dams, then there was a chance they could, they could hinge the war effort, they could tip, pil, uh, tilt or pivot the whole thing in their own direction. And, and they managed it with the bomb that bounced across the river and then dropped and then blew up all these, these dams at the cost of a number of men's lives, but a very small fraction in comparison with the amount that they saved as a result. Even in Star Wars, you know, the Death Star... They know if you can destroy the Death Star, Darth Vader and his power is, is going to be limited. Now, without wanting to make it sound too silly, what I'm trying to tell you here is that this prayer, lead us not into temptation, is of that kind of magnitude. It's getting right to the heart of things. It's getting right to the essence of the way Satan works and seeks to, to destroy, ruin and kill He has one weapon. This is his weapon of mass destruction. And this is where the battle is waged in your heart. This is it. 
Now, we need to get some more clarity then about what it is that Jesus is asking us to pray for here. He says, pray, lead us not into temptation. There are a number of authors who think that this, this isn't just talking about the experience of, of temptations that you're, you're bombarded with on a day-to-day basis. It's something a little bit more intense. It's entering into temptation. I'll try and explain what that means. It's alleged that Martin Luther said this. I don't know if it's true or not, but he said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And what he meant by that, if indeed he said it at all, what he meant by that was that temptations fly over you by the thousands, even every day. And most of them don't really particularly affect you or influence your your decisions because in God's grace, you have a degree of strength and a degree of, of, uh, of, of uh, ability to resist most of these things. But he says, but the point is that certain temptations will land on you and begin to nest. That's when you've entered into temptation. So even just, I was just thinking about this earlier, even just coming into this room, there are a whole plethora of potential temptations that could have hit you. You could have been tempted to... Um, to leave. You could have been tempted to, um, to hide who you are. You could have been tempted to pretend or to, to, to act or to put on a show or, or any of these kinds of things. You could be tempted towards control. You can be tempted towards criticism or grumbling or, or stinginess or greed when you saw the cakes or any one of any, any number of things you could have been tempted towards. But... Most of these temptations just fly over us, don't they? Because God in his grace is changing our hearts. And I don't think that this passage is really talking about don't let us be tempted at all. Because that would mean you'd have to be taken out of the world altogether. What Jesus is talking about here is something a little bit more specific. It's, it's the experience that you've all known of what it means to be entangled in temptation. Not necessarily even at that point to have sinned, but to have been drawn into something with such intensity that an opportunity marries with your desires and produces a kind of, a kind of um, nuclear fusion in your heart that makes it much more difficult to, to resist. This is kind of the thing that Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy 6 when he says that those who desire to be rich, so there's their lust in their heart, they fall into a temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says that as that lust grows in their heart, they can get entangled in that sin. That's when they, become, they, they enter into temptation. And it becomes not just a bird flying over their head, but something nestling in their hair. John Owen put it this way. He says that when, when sin knocks at the door of your heart, we're at liberty. So sins are knocking, opportunities are knocking all day long at your heart. Why don't you try this? What about that? Have you thought about this? Why don't you just twist that truth? Why don't you uh, pretend it was a different thing or whatever? All these opportunities. He says, we're at liberty. At that point, you can just turn it away. Just don't open the door. Simple as that. But he says, when temptation comes in and we allow it to speak with our heart and we reason with our mind 
and it entices and allures our affections for a long or a short time, then sin subtly and always imperceptibly draws our soul to take particular notice of it, we enter into temptation. He's talking here about the conversation that can begin in your heart with a particular sin, where you begin to rationalize and become seduced by it. And gradually, slowly, bit by bit, parts of your your resolve give way. This is what it means to enter into temptation. And he goes on, he says, this is what happens when your particular lusts, and we're all different, or wired differently with different desires and different, um, different um, enticements that, that are raging in our souls. He says, when, when they meet the opportunities that are in front of you, temptation will give oil and fuel to our lusts. Of course, it's different for every one of us. But temptation will, he says, lay the reins on the neck of a lust and put spurs in its side so that it may rush forward like a horse into battle. Now, the Puritans were masters at understanding the, the motives and the, the lies and all the, the ways that our hearts work. And that's what Owen was trying to open up for us here, that there is a... There comes a point where you've entered into temptation. And this is what Jesus is telling us to pray against. Not that you'll be taken out of the world. Not that you'll never experience any form of temptation. But that when your lusts meet opportunities, that God will protect you from such situations. Sometimes that happens subtly, bit by bit, slowly like the frog in the pan of water. Has anyone ever actually done that? I'm not sure, but it's so said that you can gradually turn the heat up on a frog in a pan of water and it won't notice as the heat rises and rises. And sometimes that's how it works with us. And sometimes it's just full frontal attack. Like when David had that opportunity. I mean, in one sense, his heart had been, no doubt, growing away from God for a while. But when he had the opportunity and he saw Bathsheba across the rooftops, that was, it was a, a full-on attack that would change the course of his life and indeed of the history of Israel it can happen in different ways sometimes it comes from outside us from the world and from the devil and sometimes it comes from inside us from the flesh all these things can be sources of temptation sometimes it happens in prosperity and sometimes in adversity John Calvin said that there are there are so big is the scope of opportunity to sin that temptations can come in completely opposite circumstances. He says that they come from the right when someone experiences wealth and power and honor. And he says they become intoxicated with these things until bit by bit they forget God. And then they come from the left sometimes in poverty and dishonor and, and contempt and affliction and suffering to the point where they begin to be utterly estranged from God. All I'm trying to do is paint the picture of the broadest possible circumstances and how each of us can end up in temptation in different ways and different forms. But what we're talking about here is this experience of entering into temptation that every Christian needs to watch and guard against. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that the devil prowls round like a roaring lion watching for those he can devour. He says, be on your guard.
There are two reasons then that we have to pray this prayer. The first is because you know you're weak. And here's a number of things that ought to convince you if you're not quite sure of this yet. For one, I think if you've read your Bible, you'll know that Satan is smarter than you. He fooled Adam. He knew the scriptures well enough to enter into some kind of theological debate with the Son of God. And he knows and has been watching you. I don't mean he himself, because he's not like Jesus. He's not everywhere all all the time. But it seems that he has a legion of spiritual forces at his disposal. Satan is smarter than you and me. And therefore, we ought to be conscious of our weakness before the dangers that are, are, are there for our souls. Another reason why you need to be aware of your weakness is that you need to consider that even the greatest saints fall. I've mentioned Adam a few times, but Adam was sinless. He had, in one sense, no lusts native to his heart that could meet with temptation. How did sin enter in? It's not really clear to me. But you and I, born with all these conflicting desires and emotions and idolatries inside us. You look through the Bible and you see the story of the greatest heroes. It's one of the things I count most precious about the scriptures. And one of the things that proves its truthfulness is that the lives of the saints aren't whitewashed. Abraham, who's the father of the faithful, he is the great hero of the Jews even to this day. And the father, Paul says, of all those who are born of faith. Abraham falls twice to the same temptation when he lies about who his wife is so that she won't, he won't be killed on her account because she's beautiful. David, he's called the man after God's own heart who will do all my will. And yet, He does things that you and I, most of us, would consider utterly unthinkable and reprehensible. Things that would ruin the career of any Western politician forever. When not only does he commit adultery, but arranges for the the death of the husband of the woman that he slept with, Uriah. How is it that these men, such men of God, can fall? Peter says to Jesus, I won't deny you. And then three times he denies Christ. When you read your Bible, you discover that even the strongest saints fall. So as Owen put it, how shall we stand if such mighty pillars have been cast to the ground? These considerations ought to make us sober and make us urgent as we consider our need to pray this prayer. Satan is smarter than you. Great saints have fallen, greater than us. Also think about this, your own experiences tell you that you're weak. I know looking at my own heart, that I've seen the weaknesses of my life. And your own sin ought to grieve you to the ground in realization of the times, the numerous times that you've you've failed. 
And then also this, that Jesus told us, didn't he? He warned us when he spoke to his disciples in that way. In Matthew 26, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all have, as it were, our kind of Achilles heel. There are, and not just the heel, your entire body, the flesh, your body is weak. We have countless vulnerabilities. But I don't want to leave you depressed there. This is just to try and motivate you to pray this with a fervency and an urgency that this needs to become a regular part of your prayer life. And let me just paint the other side to this. This is the second great reason why Christians pray this prayer. Because God, he's all sufficient in his strength and power to help you in your time of need. First think about this. That Christ told us to pray this prayer. And he wouldn't tell us to pray it. Because this is not in Christ's nature to tell us to do things which, or, or to give us hope and then to just dash our hopes. He doesn't dangle carrots in front of us that we'll never get the opportunity to eat. That isn't his style. That's not the way he works. This is why, right after saying, teaching us to pray in this way, he then, as we read the rest of the passage, he then tells us about the fatherhood of God and how God wants to answer our prayers. That he won't withhold. That's why he tells us to pray this, because God is on your side. Next, think about this. That the New Testament shows us that the entire Trinity is with us in this particular thing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... All of them are with you to help you in times of temptation. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. The Father, he is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What Paul is telling us there is that whenever God gives permission for Satan to tempt you, God will also make sure that there is sufficient opportunity for you to say no. The Father wants you to succeed. He wants you to be kept and to be protected through the hour of temptation. There is a helpful caveat that John Owen added to that, where he said that the promise is made to those who meet temptation in their way and not to those who go out of their way to meet with it. So you can't go and put yourself in temptation's way and then claim this prayer, God, you said you keep me through all temptations and give me a way out, when you've walked right into the, the jaws of the enemy. But what the promise is for us who, who want to avoid temptation, who are using all the wisdom at our disposal, all the teachings of Scripture, and are crying out to God. And this is what people experience so often, that when you have the opportunity to sin, isn't it true that along with the opportunity to sin, there's always an escape hatch? Whether you use it or not is, is your decision, but there's always an escape hatch. That's the promise of the scriptures. The Father is on your side. The Bible also tells us that Jesus is on your side and that he has a particular role in terms of protecting you and keeping you in times of temptation. In Hebrews 2 and 4, here are some of the passages that talk about this. Hebrews 2 says this, that Christ had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest for the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That is to say that Christ Christ knows what the suffering of temptation feels like. And he knows it to an extent and a depth that you and I have never fully experienced because, precisely because, he never gave in. Which means that Satan threw everything he had at Jesus and took him right to the edge, gave him the full experience of temptation. And Jesus never buckled. He knows the full extent of what it is to suffer under temptation. And therefore, it says, rather than him looking at you with judgmental eyes, saying, I am so strong and you are so weak, woe is you, don't even look at me. It says quite the opposite, that Jesus knows what temptation feels like. And therefore, (laughs) he's made a run for it. Jesus knows what temptation feels like. And therefore, he sympathizes with us in our weakness. I find that the most comforting verse in all of Scripture. That Jesus knows what it is to to feel the allure of sin because he's experienced temptation and that when you feel it, he sympathizes for you in that moment. Over the page in Hebrews 4, Verse 14, it says that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Instead of then saying, well, in that case, we can't touch him. He's so far above us. It says quite the opposite. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying that the Jesus who taught you to pray lead us not into temptation is inviting you to come to his throne room every time you experience the allure of sin and lay hold of the mercy seat knowing that As he looks upon you in that moment, he looks at you with eyes of sympathy and kindness and love and wanting to help you. He doesn't look at us with condemning eyes, with judging eyes, with angry eyes. Jesus wants to pick us up, to strengthen us, to strap on the armor and to get us through it without falling. The Father is on your side. The Son is on your side. The Holy Spirit is given to you also for this purpose, that you might learn to walk by the Spirit and resist the flesh. This is Paul's great point in Galatians 5. When he says this, that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there is a war that's going on inside you all the time. Your body versus the Spirit of God. But the Spirit is fighting on your side. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
That's the secret to godliness in the New Testament. That we learn to obey. Rather than every allurement and enticement to sin, we learn to respond to every nudge and pull of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. What else can it mean? To walk by the Spirit is to learn to be led by the Spirit of God. That your, your conscience becomes more sensitive. That His voice becomes more clear in your heart as the, as the Scriptures become a, a booming sound to you rather than just a faint forgotten memory. To walk by the Spirit is to take hold of every resource that He has given you and that are ours as we pray this prayer. Lead us not into temptation. I want to close by giving you one final thing. We have to remember that Christ has given us everything that we need in the gospel. And what I mean is this, that our hearts are like a treasure house, a storehouse. And when, we, when our storehouse is full, we have resources to pull on. This is what Psalm 1 is all about, isn't it? That blessed is the man who he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in its season. The point is that as he is increasingly rooted in, in, in Christ, he has resources to help him through times of trial. And suddenly, walking in the way of, of all the sinners around him just doesn't seem so appealing anymore because he's become stronger and stronger and stronger in Christ. And John Owen talks about this and he says, your heart can be like a castle. He says that when a castle is well equipped with plentiful resources of food and water, and weapons in abundance. An enemy can come to that castle and think, I'll try and attack. But as soon as he realizes how well equipped it is, he's going to turn and run. And that's what the New Testament says about Satan. He says, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But how, the question is, how do we have hearts that are fully stocked with all the resources we need? And what John Owen tells us is, listen, above all, you need to have what he calls gospel provisions. And I just wanted to read you one paragraph that will take us into communion and help us understand what this. He says this. Store up in your hearts a sense of the love of God in Christ. The eternal purpose of His grace. The savour, the taste of the blood of Christ. This is what we're going to do as we take communion. He's saying... Let there be in your heart a savour, a remembered taste of the blood of Christ. You know, when you eat the most delicious foods, you don't want to have a drink too quickly because the flavour is going to disappear from your mouth. He says that's how we should feel about and treat the gospel. It should be what's in our mouth and in our hearts, what we meditate upon. He says, he goes on, and of his love in the shedding of it, of his blood. Get a taste for the privileges we have through this, our adoption, justification, acceptance with God. Fill your hearts with thoughts of the beauty of holiness as the effect Christ intended in dying for us. And you will, in the ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security 
from the disturbance caused by temptations. Christ has given us everything we need. And the point is that you never have to buckle. You never have to sin. I know that while we're in the body, we won't reach perfection, but God in his grace has given us everything we need. This is why we pray this prayer. That we might keep coming back to the source, coming back for the power we need to live lives. And friends, let me close by saying this. Your holiness is God's intention and desire for you. I don't know what you dream of in life, what ambitions you have, what hopes you have, where you want to go, what you want to achieve. But listen, everything else is secondary to this goal that God has for you, and that is to make you holy. That's his ambition for you. And it ought to be our ambition for ourselves. That before we say, I want to preach the gospel to unreached people groups, or I want to be a doctor who ministers um, to people and gives them hope as they're dying, or whatever it is that you have in your mind and your heart, before any of those things, it ought to be the ambition, the resolution, the desire, the passion of every Christian that they be holy. And therefore, this prayer is where the war is waged. Lead us not into temptation.